Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out how a son continued a fight started by his late father to have the name of a French marshal and Nazi collaborator removed from a peak in the Rockies on both sides of the Alberta-BC border. We learn more about the new Omicron subvariants that are driving a summer wave of COVID-19 in this country. We head to Japan as the country grapples with the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe to learn more about the sorrow, shock and anger there and about the legacy of Japan's longest serving post-war leader. But first, a massive outage knocks out Roger's wireless cable and internet service to millions of Canadians. What was the impact? How could it happen? And how much of it is down to a lack of competition in Canada's telecom sector? I'm sure many of you were hit far worse than I was. I kind of, I don't have Rogers. Um, I really noticed it at the grocery store because, of course, everything was closed. All the self-checkouts were closed. You had to use cash unless you had certain credit cards, but really not uh, such a big deal. A lot of other people had a much worse day today. We know that Interact was down. Um, Debit was not available for most of the day. Arrive can down, passport offices, police, courthouses, even the CRTC, allegedly, the people who are supposed to be monitoring this stuff, they use Rogers. Some Rogers customers couldn't make 911 calls. We understand that's not supposed to happen. We'll have to look into that. Um, the weekend was supposed to play in Toronto tonight at the Rogers Centre, of course. That's been postponed because of service outages. In Toronto, where, of course, there are a lot of Rogers users, people flocked to use Wi-Fi at coffee shops just to get some work done. Here's Catherine Bowen. She's an independent fashion uh, fashion consultant, and she was on the floor of a Starbucks trying to reach folks. I don't really know because right now I'm staying in Starbucks until my phone dies because at least I can call and text while I'm here. But as soon as I leave, I can't, I can't get any service at all. Yeah. Nine million wireless customers, just shy of three million customers on the cable and internet side of their business. That's a lot of people. How did it impact you today? Let me know. I'd be curious. 877-399-9898. 877-399-9898. Let me know who you are and where you are. Are you surprised that this happened? What can be done about it? How did it impact you today? Let me know. We'll share those throughout the show. The company, of course, has apologized. It all comes as Rogers is attempting to win regulatory approval for its $26 billion takeover of Shaw Communications ahead of a July 31st deadline. Be hard to figure out where that's going now. This does highlight, some say today, the impact of a lack of competition in Canada's telecom sector. Well, joining me now with more on this is David Skillcorn. He's a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University in Kingston, He's also the head of the NSEC Create Cybersecurity Program at Queen's and Royal Military College. Thank you for your time tonight. Good to talk to you. This is quite the wake-up call, isn't it? I mean, how does an entire network go down for so long? Or, I mean, is it surprising that an entire network could go down for so long across the country? Well, I think the surprise for most people will be that they're kind of aware that they live their lives in cyberspace but they're probably not so aware of all the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that also happens in cyberspace. And so I think the shock from today's outage is really about the fact that point-of-sale terminals are not working, that ATMs are not working, and all kind of back-office stuff is not functioning. I gather that the ArriveCan app doesn't work today either. And it just goes to show how much we've moved our lives into the Internet not just as individuals, but as businesses and governments and any organization you can think of. And it's created this this huge vulnerability that we've seen exposed today. 
I gather 911 calls are down as well. Yeah, um, that's another, well, not all of them. But not all, but I mean, through them, Rogers, yeah. yeah. I thought and that I wasn't supposed to happen. CBC station was off the air today because of some issue arising from this. Yeah, and the CRTC's phone lines too apparently are down, ironically. Um, I thought 911 was meant to be protected in these in these situations. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what the stories are referring to, but for example, um, people who have voice over IP phones uh, can't access 911 directly. It has to go somewhere and then connect to the hardwired 911. And so that may be what they're talking about. So when something like this happens, and this isn't the first time this has happened of late, we had another outage last summer. Uh, what does it signal about the vulnerability of the system? Well, the, I mean, the problem is we really only have like two and a half uh, network carriers that carry all of this internet traffic in, in various different places. And, and that's been kind of a, an obvious vulnerability for a while. I'm, I'm part of a project which is looking at setting up a, a public safety broadband network so that there will be a parallel network that will keep running when these kinds of outages happen. But of course, that's not free. And that's really the fundamental problem. All these telcos really would have to spend more money to be resilient. And of course, that impacts their bottom line and their shareholders. And so there's always kind of some reluctance to do that. And yet when these sorts of events happen, I can't imagine it's good for the bottom line. No, but it's, I mean, it's the fact that it's happened slowly and we really don't understand as a total society how much we've come to depend on this infrastructure. In some ways, it, you know, it's as fundamental as electricity and water and things like that, and yet somehow it doesn't resonate at the same level of importance. Given the project that you're working on, I know that exists in other countries where not the entire system is owned and operated by private telcos. Uh, what sort of resilience would that provide and how realistic is it that it will come to fruition? Well, I think there's a number of the pieces that are sort of already in place. I mean, the key idea is that you don't put all your eggs into the one, two, three baskets that we're currently in, but you actually build parallel infrastructure. So there are cables that will connect things in parallel, and there's a different flavor of radio connection that isn't just Wi-Fi, 3, 4, 5G, but, and therefore will, will work even when those systems don't. In a way, it's kind of stepping back to a more primitive technology, but but that means that it's also a bit more reliable. If to, to go back to the outage today, though, I mean, I, I imagine that would at least provide some redundancy because I gather what we're witnessing today is the idea that there is no safety net for a lot of these systems. Yeah, I mean, you know, we already have the, the parallel systems of uh, Rogers and, and, and Bell and so on. So, I mean, the whole country didn't go down, only 25% of it did. <laughs> But, but that's quite a big percentage. It is. It, I mean, it, it's huge if you think about it. Uh, it. But if there is no safety net, how then do you, A, impress upon people that this is critical infrastructure and what can be done? I mean, you've mentioned part of it, but does need more need to be done to make sure there is redundancy in the system so we can avoid situations like what we saw today? Specifically, as you mentioned, considering how reliant it seems so many of us are, both commercially, individually, on these systems to function. Yeah, it's, it's a little surprising to me that, that the entire Rogers world sort of went down in one big hit because I know internally there is resilience in their systems and this doesn't look like the sort of outage that happens in like one part of the country or because they updated one computer system. This, this seems to be pretty much across their whole world. 
and, and that's a, in itself a, a bit of a puzzle, I, I think it's, it's fair to say. Um, right. but, and, and presumably they would like to have more resilience, but, but until we know exactly what happened, it's hard to know what fix might have been. I remember one case was not, was a beaver not responsible once when part of the system went down, at least out west. Um, well, things like that happen all the time, but usually yeah. they only bring down a tiny piece of the system, not the entire thing. You mentioned earlier that we have two and a half systems in this country. Um, there is a movement afoot for um, a Rogers and Shaw deal. Do you think this uh, damages that at all? I know that's not necessarily your lane, but uh, do you think this would be an argument against uh, more concentration in this, in this industry? Well, I mean, the timing is really terrible, isn't it, for that, for that kind of takeover? Um, because all that is doing is reducing the number of players in the field, and that doesn't look like a good thing sitting here today. What then should the federal government be doing then? I mean, this is, if this is in fact critical infrastructure, then clearly this is something that, uh, that it should be in the hands of Ottawa at the end of the day. Uh, what should they be doing then to make sure that, uh, that the system is more resilient? Well, I mean, they've been trying. The, the, the so federal government has three pieces of their kind of cybersecurity defensive strategy. One is individuals, and that's been going reasonably well. One is the government, and that's been going really very well. But the third piece is critical infrastructure, and there they have not managed to get traction, even over the last almost 15 years now. And it's not just the telcos, it's uh, hydro and electricity and and, uh, um, finance and all of those things where they've been pushing reasonably hard to try and get those organizations to take resilience seriously and been getting really almost no take up. I'm speaking with David Skillcorn. He's a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University and head of the Insert to Create Cybersecurity Program at Queen's and RMC in Kingston. When we come back, we'll talk about more, just a bit more about how you can protect yourself. What can you do to make sure that uh, when one system goes down, you're not left vulnerable? Uh, we'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is David Skillcorn. He's a professor in the School of Computing at Queen's University and head of the Insert Create Cybersecurity Program at Queen's and Royal Military Colleges, both in Kingston. Uh, David, what what can individual consumers do? I mean, there was a lot of uh, I told you so is going on today, but uh, what can individual consumers do to better protect themselves to provide some some redundancy within their own uh, their own home, for instance, or their own their own uh, connections? Well, I mean, one of the things is to, to ne- not necessarily walk into the package deals that many of the telcos try to push. Right? They, you know, they would like you to have your, your internet and your cable and your phone and everything through a single provider. And, and maybe the kind of outage we're seeing here suggests that really that's not an ideal thing to do as a consumer. I've heard from some of my friends that the only reason they could get any work done today was that their spouse happened to have signed up with a different provider and therefore they, could, they had a workaround. Um, so that's one thing to think about. Um, this is, of course, not on any single consumer, but there's kind of generic things that people should do to make sure that they keep their, their system safe. And I guess we talk about these over and over again, you know, make sure that updates are installed as soon as you can. Uh, make sure that you restart your system once in a while and that you're not using illegal or pirated software and so on. I imagine this must have been a very expensive day across this country. Then, yet another reminder of how uh, of how important these infrastructures are. Or this infrastructure is right now. Yeah, and most of it won't get counted, right? Because it's it's the irritation of people who couldn't do something that they wanted to do, but nobody will ever ask them, and so they'll get left out of the calculation. I happen to know that that um, tomorrow is Eid, and it's a traditional day to give cash presents. And uh, some of my Islamic friends are very glad that they got money out of the ATM before today, because it looks like that's going to be a problem for many people. 
Yeah. It, it, I mean, it, again, just to go back to the beginning, it does kind of boggle the mind just how much, just walking around even where I am today, how much was impacted by this one outage? Yeah. And, and not just the things you can see, but the things that you can't see behind the scenes. You know, there's, there's probably uh, Amazon orders that got lost and, and planes that got uh, can flights that got cancelled because they couldn't do the check-in or they couldn't do the flight planning or whatever. We we won't know about those things for a few days at least probably. The, the knock-on effects are just huge from this. So going forward then, um, to use that term, <laughs> term that we use too often, but looking ahead, say, what needs to be done now? If this is yet another wake-up call, uh, both for Rogers and for the rest of us, what do you think should be done to try and improve things? Uh, what would you like to see come of this one? Because often what happens like last summer is, you know, Rogers offers a, a rebate or offers some compensation. Everyone just sort of forgets, goes about, back about their normal lives. Uh, maybe they get a landline again, who knows? But um, what do you think would be an ideal outcome of this one if we were not to suffer through this again? Yeah, as you said earlier, once you see that this is a, a sort of a piece of critical infrastructure in a way that maybe hasn't been so obvious, then it's clear that the government has to get involved. And they have to get involved in a fairly serious way uh, in what they might otherwise prefer to be like economic decisions. Clearly, it's not enough to make decisions based on just on profit for something that impacts so much of our lives. And that has changed, obviously. Has has the regulatory environment caught up with just how much we've become, specifically during the pandemic, how much we've come to depend on this infrastructure for just about everything? Well, no, the regulatory environment is always running you know, years behind the reality of what's out there. And that's because all of the technology is changing so fast, right? But I mean, you look at other countries and you see that Canada is a, a bit of an outlier in terms of paying a lot more and not getting particularly more than anybody else. And so there's, there's some structural problems in the system that the government could also have a look at. It. And they've tried. They said, you know, we're going to impose limits on how much you can charge people. But but that doesn't actually help if it means the telcos you put in less infrastructure. Yeah, that seems like a bit of a <laughs> a, a bit of a Pyrrhic victory then, doesn't it? When you when you get them to charge less, but then they invest less in the system. Why is Canada an outlier? I know this question gets asked a lot, but I lived abroad for quite a while. And you know, in a lot of countries, uh, cell phone service is relatively cheap, you know, it, it is. Uh telco service is relatively inexpensive. It isn't here. And you're right, we don't seem to get uh, to get better service. Why is that? Uh, well, I don't really have a deep explanation. I mean, I think there's entrenched interests that are able to block changes. Maybe there isn't enough competition. I mean, it's a long, thin country in terms of where the population is, which makes it expensive to connect people. Um, but when, yeah, when you look at the, the prices of internet access in India and places like that, it, it makes Canada look very sick. And, and with, with not necessarily a, a hugely better uh, product at the end of the day either. No, I would I would argue that really Canada's at least in the middle of the table and maybe lower down than that in terms of the quality of what we get access to. How do you fix that? I mean, it would seem like not just a question of consumer convenience or consumer happiness, but as you mentioned earlier, this would now be a question of national security, a question of economic security. Yeah, I mean, the problem is the internet has no borders and it's this this worldwide thing. But the local access points, the place where you first connect to the internet, are very geographical. And therefore, in a sense, the, the first rung of the ladder has very tight control over individuals, at least. And that surely is, must be part of the problem. So a last word to you then. Uh, 
uh, I, when we look back at today, what uh, what should we what should we have learned? What 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 should we have learned going forward? In a nutshell, well, I hope that the that journalists try and figure out all the places in which this had an impact, so that we can create that big list, so that people will not just say, "Oh, I couldn't read my email for a day," but really understand that an awful lot of the country didn't function today. And that if this had been the day when something nasty had happened with the Russians or something like that, Canada would have been in deep trouble. Yeah. You, tell me about that, because that is, cybersecurity is obviously something you work on. We were vulnerable today, weren't we? Yeah, just if only just because people couldn't communicate, right? So, I mean, there are committees in Ottawa that are designed to respond to bad things happening in the world quickly, but because of the pandemic, they're not in person, and so all of a sudden you're talking about crisis management committees trying to communicate with half of them connected via Rogers connections in some form and therefore unable to join in. And that could have been really, really serious. David Skillcorn, thank you so much for your time tonight. Good to talk to you. I imagine that when most of us see the name of a mountain and we perhaps don't ask too many questions about who it's named for and whether or not it deserves to be there. Well, not the late Jeffrey Taylor, an infectious disease specialist uh, and professor at the University of Alberta, and of course, a history buff. He would quiz his kids during hikes in the Rockies about the names and where they came from. And one particular name really irked him. For a century, one peak carried the name Pétain, named in honor of Henri-Philippe Pétain, who had been a First World War hero in France for leading his soldiers to victory in the Battle of Verdun. But he went from revered to reviled in the Second World War, when he led the Vichy French government in German-occupied France and collaborated with the Nazis. After the war, he was tried and convicted of treason. But a world away in the Rockies, the Pete name stayed on that mountain near what is now Peter Lougheed Provincial Park. That is until Taylor took up the cause to get it removed. He succeeded in Alberta in 2019, but that left the BC side. And his son carried on the fight in his honor after Taylor passed away in 2020. In late June, Duncan Taylor learned that he had completed the work that his father had started all those years ago. And Duncan Taylor joins me now from Calgary. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. You know, the first thing I thought of when I when I read about this was just how it all started, which is, you know, hanging out with your dad, uh, hiking, which was such a great way to sort of find out about stuff. What was it like on those hikes in, in the area? And how, do, and how, would he, uh, how did this come up? How did the idea that these peaks had names and where did these names come from and who these people were and was it right or wrong? Well, my dad was always kind of a bit of a history buff. Um, I always joked that it was, it was really easy to buy Christmas presents for him because you just... You get if there was a new book about history or Western Canadian history, especially he would be all over that. Uh, so he was always, you know, interested in um, in the mountains in in the areas that we were hiking in the Banff and Kananaskis areas. Whenever we would go hiking, he would always quiz my sister and I about well, who named that peak and and uh, what was that peak named for. So I think he was always as, as soon as we started hiking in that area, I think he became aware as to who the different peaks were named for and and why why i think it was only in in the la, the mo, in later years i guess that he start that that mount Peyton started becoming a big issue for him would you have to sort of study before you went on a hike to sort of figure out where you were going did you look up the names so you'd be prepped before you went so you'd know who each person was or was it just something that he would was it a lesson from him 
they were pop quizzes. Uh, so you never knew when to expect them. So there was no studying possible. Tell me about, about uh, a peak in both BC and Alberta, as it turned out, being named for, for Marshal Pétain. Because I think most of us know the name from the Vichy years in World War II and the, uh, in the Second World War. But, but few knew that there was a peak named after him. How did that come about and how would your dad explain it to you? Well, I think it came about because the border between the two provinces, from what I understand, was surveyed roughly around that time, the turn of the century, around the end of World War II. So when they got to that section of it, uh, it was at the end of the war. So World War One, right? Yeah, yeah. At, the end of, yeah. at the end of World War One. that's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were celebrating the end of the war. So if, if you go to that area, there's a bunch of peaks that are named after ships from the Battle of Jutland. So Indefatigable, Black Prince, Galatea. Um, there's ones named after generals and admirals of the Allied powers. So Beatty and Jellico, who were admirals, and then uh, French, Smithorian, Joffre, uh, Smuts, they all have peaks as well. And of course, Pétain. Um, never led any Canadian troops, but I, I guess whoever was naming them was was feeling victorious or feeling the uh, celebration at the end of World War I and decided to commemorate him. And so the peak got his name because I gather, of course, for those who don't know his history, that he was both he was revered than reviled, right? Yeah, that's right. So he was in in the First World War. He led the French defense at the Battle of Verdun, and he was a big hero of 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 the French for that. And then when the Second World War came around, he was, as you mentioned, he was the head of the Vichy government that collaborated with the Nazis. Uh, He was complicit in the Holocaust, and actually even congratulated. Uh, the German army after uh, the Dieppe raid where hundreds of Canadians were killed trying to liberate his country. So I think because of that, because this is someone who, you know, did the things he did that celebrated the deaths of, you know, Canadian soldiers, my dad was particularly annoyed that his name was honored in a section uh, on the maps of a section of the country that meant so much to him. Uh, Pete, of course, was tried and convicted for treason after the war and lived out his days in prison in France. You know, I, obviously, there's lots of things that people see and disagree with. How did the idea to get it changed come about? So my folks were in Canmore, and we always host family from, from different parts. So my mom's family is in New Zealand, and they came up and visited from time to time. My dad's family was uh, from Vancouver Island, or or mostly on Vancouver Island. So they would come out and visit and he would always complain and mention this as an interesting historical fact, but always kind of complain about it. And I think at one, one point I got kind of sick of hearing the same complaint over and over again. So I, I found a form on the Alberta government website that allows you to uh, suggest an alternative name or to rename a geographic feature. And I printed it out and I basically shoved it in his hand. And I said, look, if you're, if you're going to complain, be productive about it, complain to someone who can do something. Student becomes teacher in some senses because you're gathered just from your dad's history. I mean, he was a really accomplished, formidable guy, right? So, sort of saying, "Hey, do something about this." Must have taken a bit of courage. Uh, I, I think he enjoyed it when his children surpassed him. Um, I, whether that's in you know general history trivia or he was a big skier as well, so he always took us out. And I think uh, he did. He did like it when my sister and I slowly became better skiers than him. So I think he, I think he was, to some extent, proud. So what happens then? So you, you, you print out this form for the Alberta side, right? And, and uh, I gather there was some pretty quick movement there. When did this all happen and how quickly did, did it change? 
it, it took a bit. I think he first submitted the application. It was either in 2016 or 2017. Um, and then for a couple of years, we both harassed our MLAs and, and the various ministers responsible for that portfolio. Uh, and we got, you know, occasional updates. And then in 2019, uh, we were told that Alberta had decided to rescind the name, that it would consider it an unnamed peak, and that it would be consulting with First Nations groups on the Alberta side of the border to determine if there was a historical traditional name that, that should be associated with it. So he must have been pleased uh, when that happened? Uh, he was. He was very pleased. Uh, he he kind of knew that there was still half of the puzzle that needed to be fixed that uh, BC still needed to do likewise. And I guess, unfortunately, and, and my condolences again, but, but he, um, he didn't get a chance to finish that work. No, that's right. He, uh, so in 2019, we found out the, uh, that the mountain got changed in Alberta. And then uh, in 2020, he passed away. But you decided, I guess, what made you decide that you were going to carry on this work? To some extent, as I said, you know, I'm a bit of a history geek myself, and I, I do get that. I come by it honestly. I get it from my dad. So I decided as somewhat of a legacy project just to kind of to try to finish the job. So, you know, I kind of did the same thing again, found who the appropriate people in BC were who are responsible for that portfolio and started harassing them saying like, hey, Alberta made this call, you know, a couple of years ago. It's time for you guys to step up and and do the same. And by the way, it's not just a mountain; it's a basin and a creek and a glacier that you guys have to rename too. So, I'm speaking with Duncan Taylor from Calgary. He's uh, successfully, and we'll get to that. He successfully uh, campaigned along with his father at first to uh, to change the name of a peak and and different actually other features as well that span both BC and Alberta that had been named after a gentleman named Henri Philippe Pétain, who was a uh, well known uh, general uh, back in the or marshal rather back in the First World War, a revered one, then became a reviled one uh, after collaborating with the Nazis in the Second World War as the head of the uh, puppet Vichy government. He was also convicted. Of treason after that. As it turned out, that name, though, stayed. That name stayed on that peak uh, as uh, part of his First World War legacy, never recognizing uh, the change. Uh, And uh, Duncan and his father, and then Duncan on his own, fought to have those names changed. And uh, it's been successful. We'll get to how he succeeded uh, in getting the BC side of that peak and other uh, features changed right after this. My guest this half hour is Duncan Taylor. Uh, we're speaking about an effort that began with him and his father uh, trying to get the name of a peak in Alberta changed. Uh, the peak had been named for Philippe Pétain, Marshal Pétain, who was a revered World War I marshal, uh, First World War marshal, and then a reviled one in the Second World War after collaborating with the Nazis, the head of the Vichy government, a man uh, known mostly for that at this point. But the peak stayed. Uh, the peak had stayed for decades until it was changed in 2019 in Alberta. And then the fight to get the BC side changed, continued. And Duncan carried on that fight after his father passed uh, a few years ago. So how, how, did you, how did you succeed? When did you find out? And what was, uh, and, and what was the, the key to success in getting BC to follow suit? Uh, I think just persistence. Uh, I uh, found the right people to harass, I guess. Uh, the, uh, the ministers and the MLAs on that side, reminding them that this was a thing and, you know, periodically tapping them on the shoulder and emailing and saying, hey, what's what's going on with this? And then uh, just last week, actually, I found out that uh, BC had officially uh, rescinded the name of all 
uh, features. So the mountain, the creek, and the glacier that are all associated with that peak, um, that BC rescinded the name from all of them and that it's officially unnamed and, and the name Peyton is has been wiped from the map, the map of Canada at least. What was it like to, to read that? Because this had been a long project, something you shared with your dad at first, something that you now did in his honor. What was it like to, to finally get word that, that the fight was won? Uh, definitely emotional. Uh, yeah, there's no other way to say that. Uh, it's, you know, a bittersweet that, you know, the, the feeling of satisfaction that something that a project like this came to uh, a successful conclusion. Um, and, you know, sadness that he didn't get to see it, especially uh, we're uh, coming up on the anniversary of his, uh, the two-year anniversary of his death. So I think this was already a very emotionally charged time and to find out now uh, made it even more so. I guess he would have been proud, no? I mean, he would have been proud that you carried this on. I'd like to think he would. Uh, I I think he would be very happy. I think he would wonder why it took so long to do, Uh, but I think he would have been very happy in the end and... I hope proud. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting because there, there are a lot of people who just would have kept walking. You know, in in life, people who sort of put up with things they don't like. Or, what do you think it was about about your father and yourself that thought, well, you know, this this isn't right. This this needs to be corrected, and then did something about it. Um, my dad, um, I think he had a very strong sense of justice. Uh, he was an infectious disease doctor and had worked with uh, vulnerable populations, uh, especially in the HIV community through the uh, 80s and 90s in Edmonton. So I think that uh, strong sense of right and wrong from his professional life uh, carried on into his personal life as well. And as I said, this was a section of of the province that he loved. He loved hiking there. And just to to kind of see that name honored on on our maps, really, really bothered him. Of course, his legacy, you're a lawyer, right? So a sense of justice, I imagine, as well. Uh, do you still go back there? I mean, it'll, what will it be like now to head back to those same areas and walk those same trails, knowing that the, the name is gone? It's definitely going to have some added meaning to be able to, you know, look at our trail guide and look at the map and look up at the skyline and know that, you know, the map of this province and of BC and of, of Canada is going to be you know, just a little bit different because of my dad's passion and his determination. So that's, yeah, there's definitely going to be some emotional weight the next time I'm in that area. I gather there'll be a new name. Do you have any um, boats? There is no name at this point on both sides of the peak, I gather. Do you have any thoughts on what it could or should be? Uh, No, I don't. I understand that the Alberta government, I assume the BC government is as well, uh, consulting with First Nations groups on both sides. I think that's absolutely the right way to go. The you know, they should have their voice and be able to tell like the story as to what their traditional name uh, for that area was and for that peak. And I think at this point, this is where uh, I bow out of the uh, story and let other voices take over. I gather just from reading about your father that um, Mount Taylor would not be, <laughs> would not be something he'd be in He would of. not have liked that. He was, uh, he, he was modest and I, I, I don't think he would, would want his name there. Duncan, as a last question, are there, is there any advice out there that you have having gone through this over the years to others out there who see something maybe they disagree with or something they think needs to be righted, a wrong they think should be corrected? Is there any advice you have to people out there, given your own experience? I, that's a really good question. I would say that don't underestimate 
you know, the power of one person. Uh, my dad was just one guy who was, was passionate. He was educated, educated so much as that he knew the facts of, you know, this peak and who it was named for. And he was persistent and he put in the time and found the people to, to bug and was determined. And in the end he was successful. So that's, yeah, don't underestimate the power of what one person with a cause who's determined and passionate can do. Any other mountains out there or any other things that you might be looking at now? Or, or is this, is, have you now come to, is this, this, will this be your last fight on this front? Uh, I think, uh, jokingly, I think I talked to my dad once and I think, you know, there were other people that felt shouldn't have mountains. Uh, I know he was a, wasn't a fan of uh, Douglas Haig, who was a, uh, a British general, uh, somewhat considered a butcher in the First World War, but I think his, he's definitely not a Nazi. So uh, I think when it comes to renaming peaks, I'm, I'm going to stick with just that one. Duncan Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on your work, uh, both for you and in memory of your dad. Thank you very much. A highly transmissible variant of the coronavirus is spreading through the country right now, driving another wave of infections, even those among those who've already recently recovered from COVID-19. The Omicron subvariant BA5 is largely behind it, as well as BA4. The good news is that waves in other countries seem to peak quickly. The issue, again, both subvariants have shown an ability to evade the protection offered by previous infection. It comes as a new report estimates that the first wave of Omicron in Canada was like a COVID tsunami, infecting an average of 100,000 people a day. Well, joining me now with more on this is Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's an infectious disease specialist out of Toronto's General Hospital. Thank you for your time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. So to start at the, at the beginning, just the impact of Omicron, the first wave, there was uh, some data out this week that showed that uh, an enormous number of Canadians uh, contracted COVID over the first part of 2022. It seemed like pretty astounding statistics. Yeah, I mean, when the Omicron wave emerged globally, we just saw that far more people had been infected with this than with any other uh, variant uh, that preceded it. And, uh, you know, Canada was no different. This this uh, variant just swept over the world. Uh, of course, Canada was included. So, you know, while we had lots of people infected during waves one, two, three, you know, when, when Omicron hit, in December of 2021, it just swept through most of Canada uh, throughout December and uh, and January. So, you know, it, different people will discuss this wave in different manners, but I think it's important to look at this from a holistic standpoint. From an individual basis, we know that this variant was milder, not mild, milder, meaning it packed a bit less of a punch compared to the Delta variant that preceded it. Doesn't mean it couldn't pack a punch. It just wasn't causing as significant illness at an individual level. But of course, it can still cause significant illness. And when you have so many people infected at the same time, even if a small percentage of those people will end up in hospital, a small percentage of a massive number of people infected simultaneously ends up being a lot of people in hospital. And that's exactly what we saw. And now we're contending. I mean, one of the things that was interesting was that um, a combination of sort of having had it and vaccination would seem to increase 
one's resistance to it. But we're seeing these new variants now that suggest that isn't true or isn't true for the new variants, at least. No, I mean, based on everything we know to date, these vaccines still hold up in terms of protecting individuals against more significant illness like hospitalization and death. And that's just what they do. Now, it's clear that the vaccines have lost a lot of their protective benefit in terms of, you know, shielding us from getting the infection in the first place. It doesn't mean that they don't do that. They just do it to a much, much, much lesser extent compared to earlier on in the pandemic when we were dealing with the original virus or the alpha variant. Now in the Omicron era, sure, the vaccines provide a little bit of protection against getting the infection, but they really do stand up in terms of protecting us against more severe illness like hospitalization and death. And in fact, there's wonderful data from Israel, from Qatar, and other parts of the world, actually, most places that are now reporting their Omicron data, you still see the incredible protective benefit of vaccination that really holds against more severe infection. So yes, by and large, it's, you know, people are getting infected. And obviously, we don't want anyone to get infected. But the vaccination, especially ensuring people are up to date on their vaccines, which means a third dose and sometimes even a fourth for most, it really does provide very meaningful protection against significant illness like hospitalization and death. Tell me a bit about BA4 and BA5, the new variants that we're seeing, because we're reading a lot now about how, how they're really becoming or have become already the dominant variant in most parts of, uh, of the Western world, at least. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is this is really fueling a summer wave here in Canada, of course, elsewhere in the world. This one emerged and was initially described by some uh, scientists in South Africa. And just kudos to them. I mean, South African scientists have been leading the way in terms of identifying and sharing data in real time. And they've done such a tremendous service for the world. They had a they had a wave several months ago. And then after them, uh, Portugal was the country that followed next. Now, their BA5 wave is, is receding, but we now see many other parts of, for example, Europe and, and North America, Australia, some Asian countries as well, contending with the BA5 wave. I think Canada is still early on in this wave, and it'll likely peak sometime in uh, the latter part of, of July. Um, you know, things that are working in our favor is that it's summer. We don't have millions and millions of kids indoors in the same uh, classroom, for example, five days a week for eight hours a day. I mean, and, and people are generally not working indoors as much as they were during, you know, the pre-summer time. So that that's clearly working in our favor. Things that aren't working in our favor uh, are that this is a pretty transmissible variant and it does chip away at some of the protective immunity that we've had. So we're seeing all the metrics rise, Right. The wastewater signals in most of the country are, are up. Even though we're doing a limited number of testing, it's still consistently done. And the percentage of tests that are positive are up. And in fact, we're seeing a small but real bump in hospitalizations in many parts of the country as well. And again, this is driven by the BA5. And if you take a step back and say, okay, you know, is this just more of the same, you know, it, the answer is no. I mean, like this, we don't need to take a fatalistic approach to this and say, oh, there's nothing we can do. Of course there is. I mean, there's many people that aren't up to date on their vaccinations, and it's a great idea to to do so, especially for people who are at greatest risk of severe infection. Um, you know, we know that this virus is primarily transmitted in indoor settings. So you can put a mask on, especially a high quality mask in indoor settings. And then lastly, you know, it's summer in Canada. We're blessed with just the best summers. And, you know, if you have an option, for example, you're having family over, instead of having people indoors, you can have a backyard 
barbecue and, and just choose to do things outside as much as possible where we know the risk of transmission is much lower. Tell me a bit about BA4 and BA5. How is this virus mutating and what is it doing when it does? I, I gather this one, uh, the, the body doesn't recognize some of this virus, if it, even if it has had, had, even if you've had COVID in the past, specifically even Omicron in the past, that somehow BA5, BA4 and BA5 uh, seem to be able to walk around that a little bit. Right. So there's a part of the virus that's called the spike protein, and that's really important for the virus to really latch onto human cells and then enter our bodies. And a lot of the mutations are in and around that spike protein area. And what they do is they can basically weave and bob around some of the protective immunity that we've, that we've generated such that it's more readily able to infect human cells. That's basically what happens. And, and quite frankly, that's that's a pretty generic answer that's true for just about every time this virus has mutated and caused either more transmissible infections or sometimes even more virulent infections. But that, that's essentially what's happening. And a lot of the focus is on the spike protein and rightfully so. But again, I, you know, I know I sound like a broken record, but it's important that people hear this. The vaccines are phenomenal. They truly are. And while they don't protect us as well as they once did in terms of getting this infection, they really stand the test of time to protect us from more severe illness. So we know who's disproportionately impacted by this, right? Those who are on the older end of the spectrum, those who have underlying medical conditions that put them at greater risk. And yeah, while everyone should be going and, and, be, and, and people should be up to date on their vaccines, it's especially important for those who are at greatest risk for severe illness. I'm speaking with Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's an infectious disease specialist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. We're talking about a new wave, a summer wave, depending where you are, a seventh wave in some areas, uh, a lesser one in others, of uh, BA4 and BA5, new variants of Omicron, uh, and, and how best to protect ourselves, what the impact might be. When we come back, again, we'll go back to perhaps what public health officials should be doing about this. Uh, and the public is, is still receiving these messages properly. That's next. My guest this half hour is Dr. Isaac Bogosh. He's an infectious disease specialist based out of the Toronto General Hospital. We're talking about uh, a new wave of Omicron, BA4 and BA5 has taken over uh, much of the Western world. We're reading about it, uh, about spikes in the US and Europe, uh, Canada as well. We're expecting a so-called summer wave. Uh, You've talked about this. You've talked about this already, the importance of vaccination. Uh, Canadians seem to have... uh, tuned out a little bit when it comes to the messaging about getting getting their shots. Is this now time to think of definitely about a third dose and certainly perhaps about a fourth? I'm, if, I'm not surprised many people have tuned out, right? It's been two very long and challenging years. Well, really two and a half really long and challenging years. There's been so many ups and downs, but lots of downs. And uh, I appreciate that everyone wants to live their lives. And, and so they should. I just think there's just simple things that we can do to create a safer environment for individuals and, and for communities. And, you know, one of the issues too is building back some trust in, in public health and in, in healthcare. And that's, that's obviously an uphill battle. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a, a significant component and a, a big piece of a much larger puzzle, but still a big piece of this is vaccination. And we know that vaccination does provide very meaningful protection against severe illness with, with uh, COVID-19, including with the BA5 sublineage of Omicron that's circulating now and causing our summer wave. And, and certainly it would be very important for people to you know, really have a peek at what their provincial guidelines uh, are suggesting and, and, and really be up to date on their vaccination. What is, you know, uh, 
this drives me nuts, but it's, it's a sad reality we've seen time and time again. You know, different provinces are doing different things. And even within the province at a sub-provincial level, there might be different uh, public health measures. And, and I, I, you know, I think that's obviously confusing and, uh, and, and can really, unfortunately, breed more mistrust and, and, and more and more people tune out. So that's, that's unfortunate, I think, from a lessons learned standpoint at a federal and a provincial and a municipal public health standpoint, I think there could be much better coordination across the country. It's certainly when it comes to protecting those most vulnerable, because the other story we've been talking about a lot these days is just how overtaxed and how swamped emergency rooms are across the country due to uh, lack of staff, COVID as well. Um, if anything, getting vaccinated, protecting oneself is, is protecting a very fragile healthcare system right now. Oh, home run. And I would expand that well beyond the emergency departments. I mean, if you really look at any aspect of the healthcare sector, you'll see that it is completely stretched from outpatient clinics to other non-emergency department aspects of hospitalized, uh, of the hospital system. I mean, it is, uh, it is, it is significantly stretched. And, you know, there's lots of factors that are driving this. One of, one of several is that, you know, many people have left healthcare. Uh, it's been a very challenging place to work over the last two and a half years. And a lot of people just said, thank you, but no, thank you. This isn't for me. And I, I would wager that if you walked into any hospital in the country and went on to any ward in any hospital in the country and said, hey, do you have enough? Uh, are you having staffing issues? I think the answer in any single ward would be a resounding yes. And that certainly has an impact on public health. I mean, if, if, if you're not worried about getting Omicron because it's not as severe, the implication, though, is if the healthcare system you're relying on, if it is, isn't quite up to snuff right now. Uh, your best to protect yourself, one would think. A hundred percent. I mean, so certainly I would never underplay the significance of Omicron. And while it might not cause the same punch as, you know, prior variants on a case-by-case basis, it's so transmissible. And of course, some people are going to get sick and some people are going to land in hospital. And because it's so transmissible and so many more people get sick from this, it ends up being a lot of people in hospital. And that's why we had, uh, you know, a rather deadly wave in the winter. We, we did. We did it by, by any metric. So, you know, as you point out, you can take a step to protect yourself at an individual level and protect your family, but it also has a tremendous positive ripple effect uh, on a healthcare system when everyone goes out and says, you know what, I'm going to take steps to ensure that I don't have uh, a severe illness with COVID-19, be it being up to date on vaccination, doing, uh, you know, and still enjoying your summer, but really taking things outdoors or putting on a mask in an indoor setting. I get it. I fully get it, as hopefully 38 million Canadians do as well. There's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that's going to stop this. You know, enough with the simple solutions, uh, because there aren't any. This is, you know, we take a multitude of approaches to create a safer environment to protect ourselves and to protect Canadians. And I think if we sort of follow suit with that, we'll we'll be in a much better place. The other thing to remember, too, is we're in a summer wave now, and, and no one wants to talk about it, but it's important, is that we're going to have a rise in cases probably sometime in the late fall and for sure throughout the winter like that, that's going to happen. And that's going to correspond with an influenza season. That's very likely to happen as well. We're seeing the Southern hemisphere uh, in a, in a bit of a challenging flu season as well. Like there's more on the horizon. And I certainly think we can prepare ourselves to create safer indoor environments, build back trust in public health, get people up to date on vaccines, prepare for vaccine rollout in, in the fall 
and uh, you know we'll be okay. We absolutely will. But of course, it takes planning and and sound communication to get buy-in from from the general population. Isaac Bogosh, thanks so much for your time tonight. My pleasure. Have a good one. Well, it's been a second day of mourning and shock, disbelief in Japan after former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, one of the giants of post-war Japanese politics, was shot and killed while giving a campaign speech early Friday local time uh, ahead of elections this weekend. The 67-year-old was the country's longest-serving post-war Prime Minister when he resigned in 2020. Now, one of the things that's that's most remarkable as well about the assassination is it comes in a country where gun crime is nearly unheard of. It's obviously led to an outpouring of tributes from world leaders, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who said Canada had lost a close friend who was a thoughtful, compassionate and strong leader. He was a great friend and a partner to Canada. He was a man of immense talent and not just his family, not just the entire country of Japan, but the entire world feels his loss. You know, political assassinations, I was thinking back to the ones that I remembered best. Uh, perhaps Anwar Sadat, because I was the right age to remember the shooting of Ronald Reagan, obviously stood out. He survived, obviously, but that one stood out uh, to me as well. Um, police have arrested the suspected gunman. He was arrested at the scene of the attack. He's been identified as a 41-year-old, a former member of Japan's Navy. His motive tonight remains unclear. It's not believed necessarily to have been political, so who knows? Uh, Trudeau says the attack demands pushback, though, against rising violence and threats that are harming democracies everywhere. We must all join together in condemning and pushing back against any threats of violence, any threats of intimidation and division that undermine the public space that we occupy in a democracy in which we all feel safe to contribute, to share and to serve. Police say the gunman used a weapon that was obviously homemade and that similar weapons were found in his home. Well, joining me now from Japan, where it is Saturday morning, is Philip Lipsy. He's a professor of political science and director of the Center for the Study of Global Japan at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto. Thanks so much for your time today, tonight. Well, thank you for having me. Just the reaction. I mean, it must be bewildering for Japan right now. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, there is a very pervasive sense of shock and disbelief, um, even uh, today, one day after um, the assassination took place, that this kind of violence uh, could happen, uh, particularly during a major national election campaign uh, to a very prominent political figure. Uh, so, you know, it's basically uh, 24-7. Um, if you turn on the TV, they're, they're talking about this, and I'm sure they'll be talking about it for some time into the future. What has been the tone of it? I mean, I've spent some time in Japan. It's one of the, it's a place you feel uh, almost alarmingly safe. Uh, gun crime is unheard of. Uh, what has been the tone today? What are, what are the questions being asked in Japan today? Absolutely. Um, I think across the political spectrum, uh, there, there was very angry condemnation towards um, the assassin and the senseless violence that took uh, his life. Even the leader of the Communist Party, uh, which is on kind of the polar 
opposite in terms of political ideology. He came out very strongly, um, you know, kind of uh, remembering, uh, you know, his uh, public debates with Abe, but saying that this kind of violence has no place in Japanese society. And you hear the similar kind of messages coming in from uh, the business community, NGOs, um, and of course, the international community, which, uh, you know, Abe cultivated so effectively during his time as, as prime minister. So, you know, there, there's a very strong sense that Japanese democracy uh, is under distress and that this kind of act cannot be condoned. Um, and I think the country is coming together in that sense. Um, you know, uh, there, there is an, an active debate about, you know, Abe's controversies and whether this was justified or something like that. There's just universal condemnation. I guess, I mean, we, the amount of information released about the suspect was, was, was done pretty quickly, what we knew about him. Um, and I guess we don't know much about anything else, though, other than who he was. And it appears, again, getting a gun in Japan, I gather, is next to impossible, uh, that these were homemade weapons. Yeah, um, I think, you know, the, the information that you have is about as good as what I have. Um, it's relatively limited at the present time. Um, it, it appears from the photographs um, that are widely circulating that, uh, yes, the weapons were essentially homemade. And um, I suppose this is somewhat of a testament to the strength of Japan's gun control regime that, um, you know, th this type of violence requires that kind of, uh, you know, kind of uh, in independent work to actually construct a, a firearm out of individual parts. Um, so it wasn't a weapon that he acquired um, commercially, for example. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the details about the motive are, are still relatively vague. And it might be because the uh, assassin hasn't really um, revealed everything at this point. But I'm sure we'll be seeing more information coming out um, in the coming days. The one thing, I mean, I've seen lots of politicians speak. I didn't see anything about where uh, former Prime Minister Abe was standing yesterday and the lack of security around him that would raise alarm bells. It's quite common when you see politicians giving sort of stump speeches like he was outside Nara's train station. Nara's a pretty quiet place in general. Uh, has there been a debate already about, about the security situation and just how perhaps he should have been better protected? I, I've seen some discussion of this, but I, I, it's a it's a tough one because you know as as you mentioned, Japan is such a safe country. Gun violence is so rare, and and one uh, attractive um, part of the politics of Japan is that politicians aren't fearful of their fellow citizens. And if you go to your local train station during an election, you'll almost always see. Um, a candidate or a politician uh, talking to their supporters with very minimal security, shaking hands and, and so forth. And so, you know, there, there has been some criticism, some questions raised about the level of security uh, during this incident. But, you know, if you try to beef up um, that security presence, it, it may also take something away from uh, retail politics in Japan and, you know, the sense of uh, connection and trust between politicians and citizens. So I, I suppose my guess would be that it, it's unlikely 
to lead to uh, major changes like that just because it, it does at this point look more like a one-off incident. It wasn't an organized um, effort and, um, you know, the sort of level of sophistication in terms of creating these homemade weapons um, seems very unusual. Because Japan did have some so-called political violence long ago, but it's been non-existent for years now. It, it hasn't been quite non-existent, but certainly right. rare. Um, you know, there, there have been assassinations of local uh, politicians, um, a very prominent LDP politician had his home burned down. And so, you know, there, there are specific incidents like this, but certainly, you know, Abe was the longest serving prime minister, uh, a very prominent politician, still a highly influential figure. Um, and, and so the sort of magnitude of the situation, I, I would consider to be uh, quite different and, and unique, um, certainly in the post-war period. You know, get, getting into the pre-war period, this, this type of violence was much more common, but uh, it, it's still a, a profoundly shocking event. Yeah, I think there was the mayor, one of the mayors who was who was assassinated allegedly, or I, I gather by the, by the yakuza, right? There was some sort of, uh, yeah, but nothing on on right. this level. Um, no. When we come back, we will talk about Shinzo Abe's legacy because it was a quite an influential one on Japanese politics, certainly post war politics and twenty first century politics specifically. Uh, we'll be back with that. My guest this half hour is Philip Lipsy, a professor of political science and director of the Center for the Center for the Study of Global Japan at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at U of T. He happens to be in Japan now, where, of course, there's a country in mourning after the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe yesterday morning, Friday morning, uh, about 24 hours ago, uh, while giving a campaign speech outside a train station in uh, the city of Nara, um, not known as a particularly tumultuous place, Nara. Um, Reading a lot today about Shinzo Abe's legacy, and it was interesting, first of all, just how much of an impact he had as a post-war prime minister and how long he was in power. But he really sort of changed the tone in Japanese politics, didn't he, in the 21st century, sort of a country that had long looked back at, the, at what had happened in the Second World War. And he had sort of was much less apologetic about the past. That's right. Um, you know, throughout his political career, this was one of his agenda items to essentially the way he saw it move beyond the past um, and to uh, shift to a forward-looking foreign policy. And, and so, you know, he acted on that set of ideas when he was prime minister, essentially by trying to create moments of closure. Uh, you know, he became the first Japanese prime minister to uh, visit Pearl Harbor and uh, President Obama visited Hiroshima. And he also tried to negotiate an agreement with the South Korean government uh, that would um, essentially resolve uh, bilateral tensions over the comfort women issue. And, and that proved to be unsuccessful. Ultimately, the tensions have continued to fester in, in many ways. Um, but but he did um, attempt to shift that narrative. And um, in Japan, I think this reflects a generational change. The number of people who lived through the Second World War has been dwindling. Uh, it's an aging society. But, um, you know, the, these are events that took place, after all, 70 plus 
years ago. And, and so, you know, there, there's a younger generation now that feels that, um, you know, this is something that happened in the history books. And why does Japan need to continue apologizing for these historical events? And Abe articulated that view um, throughout his career. But, you know, that said, I think it's also important to understand that as prime minister, he adopted a relatively pragmatic approach. Um, initially, some thought that he would be a bit of a ideologue, a nationalist. And there were some elements of that during his rule. But he also uh, very uh, actively engaged with China and improved relations, for example. Uh, and, uh, you know, South Korea, I think, stands out as the one bilateral relationship where relations remained uh, troublesome and difficult. Um, but he also tried very hard, for example, to uh, reach a peace treaty with Russia, uh, one of the little bits of unfinished business from the Second World War. And that that was also a failed effort. Um, so he, he, he played a very active role in, 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 in these issues. And, uh, you know, I think that is one legacy uh, that he leaves behind as well. I remember from my time in China that he could prove to be quite a controversial figure, at least in Beijing. Uh, how, how did that, I mean, you mentioned that he had improved relations, but I, I know there were things that he did too. He sort of, he was a muscular Japan that, uh, that, that China didn't like at all. How do you think his, his assassination will impact that relationship between these two countries as it enters yet another complicated phase? I think I think the irony is initially, um, you know, certainly the Japan-China relationship when I became, became prime minister uh, was very cool, and uh, you, you know the uh, you know sometimes you can pull up photos of Xi Jinping and Abe and and sort of see them you know standing next to each other frowning and obviously sort of very unhappy to be in the same space with each other but by the by the end you can sort of put these pictures in line and you know there's little smiles that appear on their faces and that you know by the end of Abe's tenure it actually begins to resemble a relatively warm relationship and I, I think the key turning point there was um the U.S. Uh, political situation and Donald Trump essentially initiating uh, a trade war with China on the one hand and then um, pulling out of some key institutions that were the pillars of the post-war international order that Japan has relied on uh, for many years. And so I think there was a sense on both sides that there might be some room for improved relations, that there, there was an opportunity and, and a need to uh, at least move things in a positive direction. And I, and I think to Abe's credit, um, he was able to do that despite this um, history, as, as you mentioned, of um, uh, taking positions on issues of historical memory that are uh, extremely controversial in, in China. When you look at, um, I mean, Shinzo Abe, let's be frank, was one of the few Japanese prime ministers that I think many people outside the borders of Japan knew. He was perhaps the most famous prime minister that they've had. Uh, how is his relationship with Canada and what impact will that, uh, will his will his passing have on, on what may lie ahead for Japan's relationships with us? And what did he do with Canada sure. at the time? Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, as with many of his uh, relationships with foreign leaders. Uh, Abe uh, 
uh, was able to establish uh, a close working relationship with um, particularly Justin Trudeau. And uh, uh, this contributed to considerable improvement in bilateral relations. Perhaps the most uh, prominent example was with the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, Trade Agreement, uh, which the United States pulled out of immediately after uh, Trump became president and Japan and Canada uh, played a very important role in resuscitating that uh, agreement and, and, and making sure that it wouldn't fall apart completely. Uh, but there was active um, uh, exchange uh, and uh, mutual support for person-to-person exchange, uh, scholarly exchange. And I think uh, if you follow the policy dialogue on, on both sides today, there is a very strong sense that um, uh, Abe's government left uh, forward momentum and, and that there was something to build on here. And I think this connects directly into the Indo-Pacific strategy that Canada is currently uh, developing. And this idea of the Indo-Pacific really was the brainchild of Abe. And so that language, as well as the idea that Canada can play uh, a crucial role in, in the region, uh, is deeply intertwined, I think, with Abe's legacy. Now, certainly, I think Canada uh, doesn't have identical interests with Japan, and so the strategy won't be uh, exactly the same. But, uh, you know, the fact that that strategy is being developed and will likely uh, pull uh, many ideas and concepts from the Japanese vision um, is, is something that we can trace back to Abe as well. Philip Lipsy, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Happy to be here. 